You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I want to ask and answer a question that gets put out there a lot in the public square, especially over the last few years. And the question is this, how can you be sure that what you hold in your hand right now is what they wrote back then? I mean, hasn't the Bible been through so many revisions and additions and translations and changes? How can you have any confidence that what you're reading today even remotely resembles what a guy named Jesus said 2,000 years ago. I mean, didn't Constantine change it in the 300s and then King James got a hold of it and rewrote it? How do you have any confidence that what you hold in your hands now is what they said back then? And the idea when people ask questions like that is that the the passing of the Bible through history, the translation, is kind of like the telephone game. Do you remember that as a kid? How did the telephone game work? Line the children up. And you have one in the end say a sentence into the ear of the first kid, and then they whisper it on down, and what's the big punchline of the thing? That what comes out the other end doesn't even remotely resemble in form or content what was originally spoken. And the idea for many is, yeah, this book has changed so much. It might encourage you, but don't live under any illusions that what you're reading now is what they wrote back then. And I've seen this pushed out in in the public square a lot over the last maybe 20 years. I mean, I remember for me, when I was in college, uh, I had a roommate, a young believer, and he called me in a panic because he had put his faith in Jesus. I believe you're the son of God and I put my life in your hands. And then Easter came around. And back then, every Easter time and Newsweek and all these magazines would always run a story on Jesus. And he had picked up one at the grocery store because he saw Jesus on the cover and was like, that's my guy. And he starts reading it. And it was about the premier biblical scholars on the planet today, guys like John Dominic Crossan, Marcus Borg, Robert Funk, had banded together and created what they called the Jesus Seminar. And they would sit down and they would read the gospels and then they would vote using colored beads. They would cast them into a little bucket to vote. Did that statement or that sentence really go back to a historic figure named Jesus? The red bead meant those words were from Jesus. The pink bead meant maybe the concept went to Jesus. Gray and black meant absolutely none of this came from Jesus. By the time the Jesus seminar was done, they determined only 18% of the gospels were historical. 18%. One sentence from the gospel of John. And it wasn't even a good one. It was like, and Jesus was like, whoop. And that was it. (laughs) And so my roommate's freaking out. He was like, man, I built my whole life on this. And the smartest guys in the room are saying it's a myth. How do you handle that? What do you say to that guy? Or I remember years later, a little book came out called The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code came out. There's a character in there named T-Bing who says, quote, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. And I remember sitting around a campfire in Beeville, Texas with a bunch of country dudes that were friends with my dad. They're like, well, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this fiction novel had convinced them that this was actually the work of fiction. Or even more intense is over the last few years, five, 10 years, uh, John Stewart, uh, Stephen Colbert interviewed a guy named Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman is something entirely more serious. The Jesus seminar, you can dismiss a little bit. 
On the Jesus Seminar were guys like Paul Verhoeven, you might know him from directing such hits as Robocop and Showgirls. And so to call him premier biblical scholar is a bit of a stretch, got it? And then with the Da Vinci Code, even liberal scholars who say, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God and I don't believe this book's inspired, they say, no, Dan Brown is a novelist, dude was just making stuff up. So those are kind of easy to dismiss, but Bart Ehrman is a bona fide, legitimate textual critic. A textual critic, we don't have the original copies of the uh, New Testament. We have copies that were made by hand and textual critics evaluate these copies, these texts. And he's a, a, a bona fide textual critic, world-class one. And he wrote in a book he entitled, Misquoting Jesus, Who Changed the Bible and Why? He says, quote, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. Probably true. We don't even have copies of the copies of the original or copies of the copies of the copies of the original, which he can't know that. But his book still hit the number one bestseller on Amazon and was a New York Times bestseller. And he went on in interviews to ask the question, how can you have any confidence in the reliability of this document? He'll go on to say there are more textual variations in the New Testament manuscript. The New Testament for centuries was copied by hand and you have these different copies. He says there's more variations, differences between these ancient texts than there are actual words. And so the Washington Post in my hometown wrote this about him. They said, Airman, a former fundamentalist scholar, peered so hard into the origins of Christianity that he lost his faith altogether. The assumption there being, if you intellectually take this seriously, you have to see that it's fabrication. How do you respond to that? How do you deal with that when you encounter that among classmates who maybe don't give you a rigorous understanding of it, but just say like, yeah, in the Bible changed and made up. How do you handle that question? Well, there's two errors to avoid. And the first one is what's called total despair. Well, we just can't know. And the second one is called ignorant certainty. Hey, if King James is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, okay? <laughs> Wait, no. Somewhere in there, there's something called informed faith. So we need to ask and answer three questions, right? This is what we're gonna do. Class, buckle up. They asked me to do this to you, by the way. If you're like, whoops, I wasn't ready for a seminar. Surprise! This is what these guys want. All right, number one, quantity. How many scribal errors are there? How many places do we have scribes who wrote the Bible out by hand before the printing press and there were differences between them? Textual critics count down to the letter of every surviving ancient manuscript. They count where all these differences are. The premier textual critic in the country taught at my seminary counted every single one in these ancient texts. They are huge nerds. <laughs> Number two, what's the quality of these variants? What kind of textual variants are they? How significant are these changes? And number three is the issue of orthodoxy. What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? Are there copies of the Bible that said Jesus didn't raise from the dead? Or are there manuscripts that tell a different story about who he really is? Now, to be clear here, I wanted to let you know that a large percentage of this talk, both in form and content, is coming from Dr. Daniel Wallace. Dr. Daniel Wallace is the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. His book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, is used at two-thirds of all seminaries in the country. So uh, most of this, the Old Testament I got from other people, but most of this is just worth noting is from Dr. Daniel Wallace, who's written widely on this. You can find his research if this interests you and you want to go deeper. But with that said, let's ask a preliminary question, and that is, do we have the original New Testament anymore? 
Do we have the original pages that Paul wrote? And the answer is no. All 27 books of the New Testament were written to the churches. And by the end of the second century, so the hundred somethings AD, they had probably turned to dust. They, they were written on papyrus. Papyrus was made by mashing reeds together. It had the consistency of about a grocery bag. So after about a hundred years or so, they would dissolve, right? Uh, we actually have papyri that has survived to this day, but it, it only comes from three places, Egypt, uh, from Qumran, around the Dead Sea, and at the base of Mount Vesuvius, Pompeii, places that are extraordinarily dry, papyrus can survive through the centuries. It's kind of wild, but we don't have the originals of the New Testament. We have copies. And each copy was copied multiple times by people. So, right, but uh, the originals have disagreed. So we have multiple copies of these different manuscripts. And as people copied them by hand, the ancient manuscripts we have disagree with each other at different points. Our two... Two of our earliest copies of the New Testament, one's called P75, P stands for papyrus, it's papyrus we have, P75, and one that's called B, or Codex Vaticanus, or just B, if you forget the rest of it. Uh, they disagree with each other about six to 10 times per chapter. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament. That means there's about 2,000 differences just between those two documents. So this is why textual critics exist. Do you see that? Now, let's answer question number one. You still with me, class? All right. Oh, okay, good. I was about to take no, no answer as a yes. All right. The quantity of variance. How many of these differences are there? Well, there's 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. Actually, there's exactly 138,162. Like I said, huge nerds. 140,000, basically. Textual variance, over 400,000. So if you're not even attempting the math in your head, that means for every word in the New Testament, there's about 2.5 variants, right? So Bart Ehrman's right when he says we have more variants than we do words, right? And if that's all we knew, we would probably land in despair. There's a statement about the quality of these variants Bart Ehrman avoids in his interviews, and we'll get to that in a moment. But the reason we have so many of these differences, these textual variants, is because we have so many manuscripts. If you only had one copy, you would have no variations, because you just have one, right? But if you add two, scribes may have made an error, they may have misdone something, you start to get variants. In, in a document as size of the New Testament, maybe you get as many as 2,000 variants. So having a lot of variants isn't necessarily a bad thing. And actually, scholars see now an abundance of these documents is helpful because you can even trace the lineage of different handwritten copies. There's the Alexandrian copy, the Byzantine. You can kind of copy and go, oh, okay, this guy misspelled this word, and then the three guys that copied from him spelled it his way. You can kind of actually trace the genealogical tree of some of these textual variants, right? We have what New Testament scholars like Daniel Wallace call an embarrassment of riches. So let's ask the question you're not asking yet. How many ancient manuscripts are there, Ben? Before the printing press, how many handwritten scribal copies of the New Testament exist today? It's a good question. Among Greek manuscripts, the original language the New Testament was written in, over 5,800. Pre-printing press, 5,800 handwritten copies in Greek, right? Dr. Wallace's study for the New Testament manuscripts, they've collected over 100 even over the past decade, right? 
Uh, it's fascinating. Most of these don't have the whole New Testament. Only about 1% do. But that doesn't mean they're small fragments. The average size is 450 pages long. That's a lot. So we have almost 6,000 Greek, the original language. Then you move to Latin. And in Latin, in the second century, the Bible began to get translated in Latin. By the fourth century, Constantine had moved his capital east to Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, it was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. We all clear on that? But when he moved the capital, Latin became uh, the language of the day and the Bible was translated into Latin. How many Latin copies of the New Testament do you think we have from before the printing press? Over 10,000. Over 10,000 of those. And even if we didn't have those, there were copies into other languages as more people wanted them, like Coptic, Syriac, Georgian, Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic, people copying by hand the Bible into other languages. If you add up these other ancient languages, you've got an additional 10,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament before the printing press. So when you add all those together, we've got 25,000 handwritten manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that exist today. But let's say we lost all those. Where did I put those 25,000 manuscripts? Would we still be without a witness to the Bible? No, because the church fathers, uh, ancient bishops and archbishops and things like that, would quote the Bible in their writings. Like Ignatius quotes Matthew in AD 107. So this goes back very far. There's a place in Germany where they count all the quotes of the New Testament in the church fathers' writings, Okay. The church fathers quote the New Testament over one million times. There's 7,941 verses in the New Testament. It's quoted over a million times. So over and over again, we have a duplication of the New Testament just in the writings of the early church fathers, okay? So all that, like, you're like, that sounds like a lot. Like, how do you even understand the significance of that? Well, let's compare it to other ancient studies, right? Some other ancient thing we know anything about. How do they stack up against the New Testament? Well, let's look at five great historians. Uh, three, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius, or first century AD Roman historians. Most of what we know about ancient Rome came from these men, right? I read Suetonius this summer. If the other two were like the New York Times of ancient Rome, Suetonius is like the TMZ. His book is wild. <laughs> Read at your own risk. But most of what we know about the ancient world came from these three dudes, right? And Thucydides and Herodotus were from the fifth century BC, before Christ. Most of what we know about ancient Greece comes from those two men. So let's look at these guys. For Livy, about ancient Rome, how many documents of his do you think we have? 27. 27. Tacitus? Three. And the earliest we have copy is from 800 years after he wrote it. 800 years. Suetonius, same thing. 800 years from his death to the first copy that we have. Thucydides and Herodotus, it's just slivers from the first century. Several hundred years before we get more. But we don't say, well, then we can't know anything about Rome. Who even knows if there was a Greece? We have some confidence that we understand these ancient worlds from these handful of documents. So if we added these five guys up, let's add them all together. If you add those five guys up, 
How many copies of their works, most of which we know about ancient Rome and ancient Greece come from these five men, how many surviving manuscripts do we have? Altogether, less than 400. And the closest they get to when these guys lived is 300 years after the original. Less than 400. The New Testament, we have 6,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, 10,000 other languages, and a million quotations. See the difference? How close do they get? Within less than a decade of the original. It's in a category all its own. Compared to the average ancient writer, average classical Greek author has 15 copies still in existence of their writing, okay? So if we were to compare them, take your average Greek scholar, we've got maybe 15 copies of their works. If you stacked them all up on this stage, they'd be about as high as this table. How high do you think the New Testament manuscripts are? Let's take the church fathers out of it. Let them sit this one out. How high do you think it goes? <laughs> Ceiling? It's a mile. Mile high, if we stack it. That's four and a half Empire State Buildings. Uh, scholars call that bunches. <laughs> it's a technical term. There's an extraordinary number of these ancient copies of the New Testament, far unlike any other book in ancient history. Now, let's talk about the date of these things. How far back do they go? The oldest published Greek New Testament manuscript we have is called P52, Papyrus 52. We got a picture of it. It's a little bitty guy. It's about the size of a credit card. There he is. P52 was discovered in 1934, 1934, okay? 90 years before, in 1844, a German scholar named F.C. Bauer had studied at the University of Tübingen. F.C. Bauer had studied under Hegel, the founder of the Hegelian dialectic. You remember that from school, the Hegelian dialectic of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? And Bauer, using that philosophy, said Peter was the thesis of Christianity. Paul was his antithesis. And the book of Acts, which is entirely a work of fiction in his view, was the synthesis of their ideas and was written way farther after their death. And the true synthesis is this gospel we call from John. So based on his philosophical assumptions, he said John must have been written in AD 160. Right? Jesus was born around AD 1, died in the 30s. So he says 160 years later, long after the death of all the apostles, this gospel called the Gospel of John was created. And that held sway in... Uh, scholarly circles for almost a hundred years. And then a kid named Colin was working in a library in England and there was a bunch of manuscripts in the basement. He was charged with sifting through as the intern. And he found this little credit card sized piece of papyrus and he read it and he said, that looks like John 18. And it was a codex, meaning it was written on both sides. The New Testament was never written in a scroll. The New Testament was always written in books. We were on the cutting edge of books. And uh, he reads John on both sides. Here's the crazy thing. You know what it said? That little credit card says, Jesus answered, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who listens to the truth listens to my voice. Isn't that well? So they sent that little thing to the three leading papyrologists in Europe at the time. Sir Frederick Kenyon, W. Schubert, Sir Harold Bell, and asked them, when do you think this came from? This copy of John, how would you date it? 
They independently wrote back no later than AD 150, as early as AD 100. And Adolf Deisman, another premier scholar, said, I would put it in AD 90. So if you lost track, F.C. Bauer, based on his assumptions, said the original was written in AD 170. Colin finds a copy from AD 90. I don't, I'm no paparologist, but my understanding is copies are supposed to come after originals. So if we own a copy from AD 90, then that means the original was written around the time of John, when he lived and when he wrote. That's the kind of manuscripts we're dealing with here, right? And so a ton of conjecture went to the flames with one little ounce of evidence. You see it? The King James Bible, when it was first translated, was based on seven New Testament manuscripts, seven. We now have 6,000 in Greek alone. So are we losing track of the Bible through the telephone game? No. We have more information on it than ever before. The picture's not getting fuzzier. It just keeps getting clearer. Do you see it? We could go on, but I feel like you guys wanna move on to quality, shall we? All right, just feeling out the room. <laughs> Question number two, the quality of variance. What kind of variants are we dealing with here? Ben, you keep saying there's these differences and variations between all these ancient manuscripts. Yay, we got a bunch of them, but how different are they? What's interesting, when you talk about ancient manuscripts, you gotta talk about, uh, are they, these uh, textual differences, these variants, are they meaningful and are they viable? So this is language we're about to use. Meaningful means, does this change impact the meaning of a word? And viable means, is it potentially a representative of the original wording? Is it a viable difference? So as we talk about these four major groups of textual variants, these texts are different, there's four major ways you can decipher how they're different. We're gonna talk about whether these differences are meaningful or viable, okay? The first group of differences between these ancient manuscripts is what we call spelling differences. Spelling differences, each variation where there's two manuscripts that are different, if two manuscripts are different, they count it. Uh, in Greek, you can spell the name John with one new at the end or, or two. The new is like an N. So you can spell John with one N or two Ns at the end. It's up to you. It's not even a spelling error. It's just a difference. It's called the movable new, uh, which is used sometimes before vowels. Uh, how many of these textual variants are spelling differences like that? 70%. 70%. Bart Ehrman never said that in an interview. He sat there with John Stewart and said, there's more variations than there are words. And he leaves the impression that who knows what this book originally said. And they laugh at the absurdity of thinking this is something special. What he doesn't say is the vast majority are spelling differences. Why not say that? Because it doesn't sell books. And I don't like that. Group number two are alterations that can't even be translated into English because Greek is a highly inflected language. So if I want to say the sentence, Jesus loves Paul in Greek, you can put those three words in any order you want. Jesus loves Paul, Paul loves Jesus, loves Paul, Jesus, loves Jesus, Paul. You can put it in any order you want and it will always mean Jesus loves Paul because in Greek, word order doesn't matter. It's just the ending of the word determines whether it's the subject or the complement, right? 
That doesn't even include adding the definite article, the word the, which you can do in front of proper names or not. It's a question of style. I had two professors at my seminary that wrote their doctoral dissertations on the definite article, the word the. Huge nerds. So just with those two differences, you could say Jesus loves Paul, Jesus loves the Paul, the Jesus loves Paul, the Jesus loves the Paul, Paul Jesus loves the Paul, Jesus loves Paul, the Jesus loves the Paul, the Jesus loves. We could keep going 96 ways and it would always be translated Jesus loves Paul. And we haven't even gotten into synonyms or untranslatable particles. So you start thinking about different ways in Greek to write that English sentence. My professor got up to 900 and then he stopped because he was tired. <laughs> so when you start talking about 400,000 variants, when you're dealing with that, it's actually pretty remarkable there's that few. So when you take these two groups, they are not meaningful, they change no meaning, and they are not viable, they're not original. How many of these scribal alterations uh, are not meaningful or viable? 99%, 99% over centuries, documents translated that give us the same message. Here's my problem with Bart Ehrman. He loves saying there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. What he doesn't say is that 70% are differences in spelling and 99% don't impact meaning, even when he's corrected on that. And then he titles his book, Misquoting Jesus, to be provocative and confusing. And I don't like treating people that way. I think it's wrong when you're talking about something this important and frankly, this unbelievable in its historical preservation. Group number three in quality of variance are uh, meaningful but not viable. That means it's a change in meaning but has a very poor chance of being dubbed authentic. I'll give you a great example. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, we became gentle among you. And there's a textual issue there because some translations say, we became little children among you. Because there's a difference in one word between gentle and little children. It's apioi and napioi, okay? And we became is agonathian. So it's either agonathian apioi or agonathian apioi. Did you hear it? It's problematic. <laughs> but there's a 14th century document that says, Agonathian Hippioi, we became horses among you. That's meaningful because horses is a word. Is it viable? No. And that's your third group, right? There's only one group, the smallest, that's meaningful and viable meaning there's some differences and has a chance of being authentic. Revelation 13, 18 says that the one who has insight calculate the beast's number, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. Right? Uh, in 1834, a German scholar went to Paris and looked at our second most important manuscript for Revelation. It was written in the fifth century, and this man studied it. It was, it was written on parchment, animal skins, and it had been scraped and written over the top of but he studied it and translated about 99% of it. His name was Constantine Van Tischendorf, which is my favorite name of all biblical scholars. Constantine Von Tischendorf, right? I missed the opportunity to name a child that, but uh, it's cool. Anyway, he found this document. Scholars studied it later, one of our oldest copies of Revelation, and it says about Revelation 13, 18, 
that the number of the beast is 616, not 666. I love what Daniel Wallace said when he taught this. He said, most scholars think 666 is the number of the beast and 616 is the neighbor of the beast. I just love that, the neighbor of the beast. So dumb, but it's great, I don't know. And if that was that one document, how do you make sense of it? But 10 years ago, at Oxford University in Ashbeline, there's a museum where they had thousands of papyri and they found a little scrap with nine chapters of the book of Revelation. And on the back of it is Revelation 13, 18, and it says 616. So, seven tons of popular Christian fiction goes to the flames, right? <laughs> Heavy metal, metal band covers from the 80s are worthless. The number of the beast might be 616. It's hard to say. That's meaningful and viable, right? But there is no church. There is no seminary. There is no creed that says we believe in the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, his bodily resurrection, and that the number of the beast is 666, right? <laughs> so let's get to the issue of orthodoxy. Let me quote the Da Vinci Code again. T-Bing. My dear... Until that moment in history, that is the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, a mortal. He said until Constantine, they all knew he was just a guy. Constantine made Jesus into God uh, to consolidate his power. But we have a copy of Papyrus 66. We got a picture of it up here, Papyrus 66. This is John chapter 1 from the second century, that's AD 200, okay? AD 200, so that's over 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. That's the Gospel of John. So did Constantine change it? We got a document 120 years before Constantine to figure it out. So let's read the first line together, and uh, <laughs> I want you to see what it says. It says, thank you for zooming it up. You got it now? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Long before Constantine, the scriptures say, the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw him. So Bart Ehrman, in the paperback edition of misquoting Jesus put in the appendices this sentence, and I quote, essential Christian belief are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. He had to put in the appendix, nothing about what you believe is impacted by textual criticism. What you hold now is what they wrote then. You see it? Let me tell one other story, because some of you are like, you didn't talk about the Old Testament. Frankly, that stresses me out. I apologize. Let me just <laughs> speak briefly about the Old Testament. And I need three volunteers. Can somebody help me with that? Would, would you be willing to grab three volunteers for me real quick? Uh, I'll talk, you find. Yeah, there we go. So for generations, the oldest copy of the Old Testament we had came from the Masoretic text. The Masoretes lived in AD 500. And they would copy the Old Testament painstakingly. So the oldest Hebrew Bible manuscripts we have are the Cairo Codex, the Aleppo, and the Leningrad. They all came from around AD 900, okay? So the oldest copies for a long time that we had of the Old Testament 
were from 900 years after the life of Jesus, okay? This is important. So we got three guys? Oh, good. Uh, all right, all right, come here for a second. Um, okay, let's, you stay right here. Let's start with you, brother. Here, come here. Can I borrow you? Okay, you, uh, just, sorry, just gonna keep. You are Jesus Christ, okay. <laughs> so, the, for, for a very long time, the oldest copies of the Old Testament, Old Testament, before Jesus, Old Testament, the oldest copies of the Old Testament we had were from 900 years after Jesus. It's a long time, okay? Then in the 1940s, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to you, I promise. In the 1940s, some Bedouin goat herders were out in the desert, in the Dead Sea, and one of them liked to throw rocks in caves in the hope that he would maybe one day hit something that would have some gold inside. It's very exciting as you're throwing rocks from the caves out in the desert. And he threw a rock in a cave and heard a crashing sound. It was kind of weird, it's not normal. So his little cousin climbed up there and found in there these, these pots. One of them was just filled with dirt, but the other one had a scroll in it. They opened up this scroll and they, they took it to a, a biblical antiquities dealer who took it to a scholar and they began to move it along through multiple scholars, began to study it. It got studied in Jerusalem, this little scroll, and they realized, hey, this scroll is Isaiah. This is the Old Testament. And so they sent it along to William Foxwell Albright at Johns Hopkins University in 1948. And Albright wrote back this sentence. My heartiest congratulations on the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. The date is not later than the ascension of Herod the Great. I should prefer 100 BC. So they got back to those caves and they found in those caves it's the one place on the planet below sea level, very dry, very salty. And they find in there scrolls that happen to contain the entire Old Testament. And they're from, can you be the Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> Thank you, sister. Albright says these should be dated from 100 BC. Got it? That's 100 years before Christ. Old Testament, now we have copies of it from 100 years uh, before Christ. Before, it was 900 years after Christ was the oldest copy we had of the Old Testament. Now it's 100 years before Christ. So 900, that's 1,000 years of the telephone game. We're about to find out how much this document changed over 1,000 years as whoever did whatever with it. Let's just read this together. Hang on a second, guys. <laughs> Let me read what R. Laird Harris said about it, one scholar. I don't quote him. This is speaking specifically about Isaiah 53, so one chapter. The text is extremely close to our Masoretic text. A comparison of Isaiah 53 shows 17 letters differ from the Masoretic text. 10 of these are difference in spelling, like honor or honor with a U, and produce no change in meaning at all. Four more are very minor differences, such as the presence of a conjunction, which is often a matter of style. The other three are letters in Hebrew, for the word light, which is added after the words they shall see in verse 11. So it's they shall see or they shall see light. Out of 166 words in this chapter, only this one word is really in question, and it does not at all change the sense of the passage. This is typical of the whole manuscript. A thousand years. What you have is what they said. What does Isaiah 53 say? 
It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. Each turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why was this book preserved in such a bizarre, supernatural way throughout history? It's not so that you would marvel at the book, but so you could meet its author. The one who lived the life you could not, died the death you deserved, so the chastisement that brings you peace fell on him. That all of us like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way, and God throughout the centuries preserved a message because he wants you to know him. And he will move history all of history, so you can know that message. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'll close with this. Bruce Metzger was the um, professor of both Bart Ehrman and Daniel Wallace, and uh, Ehrman calls him my doctor father. And he was interviewed by Lee Strobel in The Case for Christ. And Strobel asked him all these decades of scholarship, of studying, of writing textbooks, of delving into the minutia of the New Testament, what has it done to your personal faith? And Metzger said, has it increased the basis of my personal faith to see the firmness on which these materials have come down to us with a multiplicity of copies, some of which are very ancient. So scholarship has not diluted your faith, Strobel started to say. On the contrary, it has built it. I've asked questions all my life. I've dug into the text. I've studied it thoroughly. And today I know with confidence my trust in Jesus has been well placed, very well placed. I don't know what you've done with the person of Jesus. I don't know how you feel about all this, but I'm telling you that this document has been preserved through history so you could know him. Take this man seriously. No one's changed history like him, objectively. And he said he was God. That's either crazy or it's true. And God preserved his word through history so you could have hope that the tragedies of your past don't need to define your future. The sad, sticky, broken things you've gotten into don't need to stay stuck on you. The chastisement that brought you peace fell on him. And by his wounds, you can be healed right now. God moved history so you could know that and believe it and be changed by it. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.